Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Enough people in here. One of you could have said hi. Um, how are you guys doing? Good. Good. Wow. Um, all right. So if I don't know you yet, my name is Graham, and I am one of the pastors here at Renaissance. And uh, yeah, I'm glad to, to be with you guys here today. And I'm really excited to, uh, to dig into God's Word and see what He has in store for us today. Um, if you're new here, uh, I want to welcome you here and uh, share a little bit about what we've been going through as a church. So we as a church have been going through a series in the New Testament in the books of First and Second Corinthians. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, um, these books are actually letters. So they're letters that a man named Paul wrote, and he wrote it to uh, a church that he started in a city called Corinth. Uh, so Paul, he, he started this church, and you can read about this in the book of Acts in chapter 18. Uh, and there you read about how he started the church and a little bit what was going on. Um, and after he planted the church, he left to, to go to some other cities to share the gospel with the people there. And so while he was away, um, he gets this report about the church in Corinth. And, uh, and, and so he's in, in, he, in these letters, he's, he's addressing a lot of the real issues that this church is facing. So these, these issues of unity, uh, sexual immorality, generosity, and a bunch of other issues um, in, in, that, in that city. So um, we've titled this series, uh, Corinthians, Imperfect Church and Perfect Savior, uh, because in it what we're exploring are many of the issues that the church in Corinth was facing, um, but also what we're seeing is the grace of God towards them despite all of these issues. Um, as many of you may know, um, I'm currently finishing up my last semester as an undergrad at Concordia. Yeah. Pa pause for, for applause. Um, so yeah, uh, while I'm a student there, I've also been, uh, uh, been, I've had the privilege of being a teaching assistant. Um, in the Department of Applied Human Sciences. So um, I'm going to share a little bit of a story with you about uh, this experience that I had as a teaching assistant a couple years ago. So um, the, the class that I was assisting, it was uh, a group, uh, it, it, was, it was a class about learning group dynamics, okay? So you had uh, a bunch of students and they were learning about like the behaviors of how people function in a group and uh, just observing one another's behaviors. Um, the, the entire semester, there was a group of eight students, and they participated in a group setting. So what they were doing, they were working together as a team to accomplish projects. And at the same time, what they were doing was they were analyzing their own behavior and the behavior of uh, others in the group. So um, to give you an example, if someone looked like they may be disconnected from the group, what they would do is they may make note of that, and they might speculate why they thought that was. Um, or if there was someone in the group that was like, had interrupted someone, and that was like a recurring thing, they might be like, oh, this person uh, interrupts people, and you know, that's, <laughs> that's something to note. Um, and yeah, and so on. So my job as the teaching assistant was to be an observer. So I was observing the group dynamics, and also I was trying to give them a little bit of insight into some of the behaviors that they were exhibiting and through the lens of some group theories that we were learning in the class. So in this particular group throughout the semester, I noticed that there was 
um, one student who, she, she didn't seem like people were, were listening to her. The group, I could tell um, she would bring up an issue and it was kind of like glossed over. They didn't pay too much attention to her. And so what I would do is I would often try and bring it up during our debrief at the end. We would do a little bit of debrief and we would say, I would give them an example. I would say like, hey, today, do you guys think that you all agreed on the decisions that you made? And I knew that they didn't. Um, but almost everyone else in the group said, like, yeah, we all agree. Um, and the person who had felt, out, uh, felt left out, I think she was a little shy, and so she, she remained uh, silent for this time. Um, and all of this ended up, it ended up coming to a head um, in the week, before, the week before their final presentation. So five minutes left in class, and... Um, the girl who had been feeling left out, what she decided to do, she was like, I'm going to let it be known that I haven't been heard. And so she proceeded to like reprimand the group for like not listening to her um, for the entire semester. And one thing led to another and it quickly escalated and um, the, all of a sudden two of the members of the group were like screaming at each other from across the room and they were throwing, they were literally throwing pens at each other. And um, yeah. To make, that, to make things a little bit more interesting, um, they had the task of presenting their, their final presentation the following week, uh, which was to show how they interacted as a group. So that was included in their final presentation. And that was my first experience as a TA. Um, so anyway, all of that being said is today we're talking about division and unity within the church. And uh, I think it's important for us to see that as a church, we are just as prone to division like we see here. Right? So we're going to be di discussing this more as we go through our text today. Um, really why this is important is because division maligns the, the, the character of the church and the character of God. Right? And that's what we're going to see uh, is, is the main thing that we see today. Division maligns the character of the church and the character of God. So by being divided, we are misrepresenting who Christ is, and we are portraying a false image of God to the rest of the world as image bearers of God. And so this issue of unity is vital for us here as a church today and as individuals. Um, I'll begin by giving us a couple of main points that I want us to see from our text today. So we basically have two main points. And uh, those points, they have uh, a couple of truths that go along with them. They, they correlate with them. So let's take a, a look at our main points for today. The first main point, um, as we mentioned, division maligns the character of church. And, and the, truth, uh, the two truths that we see that go with it are uh, the church is filled with God's spirit and the church is to give itself for one another. Uh, second main point that we see today is division maligns the character of God. And the truth that we see in that is that Christ is united in the Trinity. Uh, let's dive into, oh, let's pray, let's pray first and, and we're going to dive into our, our text. Um, God, we come here uh, together and we ask that you would unite us as a church. Uh, God, that you would... Um, work in our hearts and, and our, our minds today as we see your word and, and hear it preached, God, that you would give us a heart for unity as we see in your character 
and um, help us to, to grow and to love one another like you love the church. Set our, our eyes and our hearts on you. God, we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, uh, let's dive into our first main point. So division maligns the character of the church. Um, again, as we mentioned, today we're talking about the divisions in the church, and this appears to be uh, one of the major or maybe the major issue with the church in Corinth is that they were divided. We, we read directly after Paul, he greets the church at the beginning of the letter. Um, he, so he greets the church, and then he goes on. The first thing he goes on to do is to address some of the divisions in the church. So in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 10 to 12, he says, I, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there may be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment." For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. So in this church, um, what was happening was that some of the people were arguing over who they were allied with, basically, as a better leader or like a better teacher. Um, and basically what they're doing was they're picking sides of like whose team that they were on, right? So uh, I was listening to uh, a preacher this week named Mark Dever, and he was explaining that in the city of Corinth in this time, outside of the church, so there, there was often these secular philosophers and politicians that would speak out in the street, um, and often what they would do is they would debate one another. And, and so people would come and listen and get these new ideas and their political views and their ideologies in life, uh, and then the people would then ascribe to these views and ideologies, and they would say, you know, I follow this person, Francois Legault or whoever it is, you know. And so the idea then was, was then seeping into the church as if the people thought that they needed to, to, to choose like a leader, one teacher over another, and they were like, I'm going to belong to this camp, or I'm going to belong to this camp. These are how I align, and this is how, uh, you know, this, this is who I follow. And so this was dividing the church. And, and this might not seem like a, a big deal. Like today we have, like, politics, and we're like, I think I'm more this, or I think I'm more this, or, you know, whatever it is. And so we're often just like, I fit into this box, and we may not think that's a big deal. But um, I'm going to tell you a little bit of a story of how I've seen this uh, personally in the church. So um, the church that I went to in, in Winnipeg, for those who don't know, my wife and I were from Winnipeg. Um, the, the church that we went to, it was a church by the same name as it. So it was called Renaissance Church, and it was planted by the same guy who planted the church here in Montreal. His name is Aaron, um, and I remember at the peak of the church existence, there were about 60 people who were attending on a Sunday service. Um, there was a lot of young people, and they liked the community, and um, they also liked the preaching. Um, Aaron, if you don't know him, he's a very charismatic teacher. He brings a lot of energy. He's, he's young, and he's enthusiastic. And so people, I think they, they enjoy hearing him preach. So some of you may know this, but when he left Renaissance Church Winnipeg, he moved to Montreal and started this church, Renaissance Church Montreal, where we are today. And so as he was preparing to leave, um, he put another pastor in place. 
and, and this pastor is, is a friend of mine. Um, this pastor, they, they share many similar, he, he shared many similar views to Aaron. Both, they both preach the gospel faithfully. Um, they are both very centered on Jesus. But the new pastor, he had a very different preaching style than Aaron. Um, he wasn't as charismatic. He was less enthusiastic. And he was an, he was a, an older man, which to some people may, to some of the younger uh, attenders, they may have been like, well, maybe he can't relate to me um, as, as much as a, a younger pastor might be able to. So when Aaron left, um, what we saw was the church, uh, the, the, the number of people in the church went down from 60 to 40 to 20 and eventually down to zero, right? So that, that church, it doesn't exist anymore. Um, and I would say that that's mainly because there are large people that were attending that church for one pastor's teaching, right? It was a divided church because many of its members were largely interested in serving themselves rather than serving one another. And so the issue of division here is essential. Right? Division maligns the character of the church. Um, Paul, he comes back to this issue in chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, and what we see is that he really gets to the root of the issue. So the first reason that we see why divisions are incongruent with a Christian worldview is because the church is filled with God's Spirit. So let's look what he says in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 3. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? Then he says this, he says, For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Right? Merely human. What's the idea here? Right? If, if you are a follower of Christ, so if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you have been given the Spirit of God. That means that God's Spirit is inside of you and is empowering you to live more like Christ. However, Paul here is saying that the church doesn't look any different than the world around them, right? They look just like the rest of the world that doesn't have God's spirit. And so what he's saying is, he's saying, look, you're, you're being merely human, right? You're not behaving as though God's spirit is empowering you. How does this look like Christ? How is this any different than the rest of the world? You're dividing the church over which leader you claim to follow. And this is merely human, right? It is not led by God's spirit. And again, if we look down at verse, 14, uh, verse 16, he says this. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? So he, here he reminds them that they are filled with God's Spirit. And so for us here today, it is important to know that what brings us unity in the church will never come from human strength. Right? It must come from God's Spirit working in and through us. Unity within the church is an act of God's Holy Spirit, and it comes from a shared hope in Jesus' finished work on the cross, not in the leadership of Paul or Apollos or James or myself or Dylan or Aaron or anyone else. So we see that divisions malign 
the church because the church is to be filled with God's Spirit. Next thing we see is that the church is to give itself for one another. And we see, um, separate from this, there was another major issue uh, of division in the church of Corinth. And so we're going to look at that in chapter 11. So um, to give a little bit of context, the church had been gathering for what they were calling the Lord's Supper. This looked a little bit different than what we would consider the Lord's Supper. What we do is we, um, from time to time, we, we will have a table. It has a small piece of bread and a little bit of Uh, of juice on it. And what we do is we take that to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross for our sins. And so uh, in the church in in Corinth, they were were actually gathering for what appeared to be like a full meal. Um, There's nothing wrong with that, I guess. But how they were doing it was was causing the division among them. And so here's what, what Paul writes in chapter 11. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. He says, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. He says, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or, you, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So again, what was happening at this meal was that some of the more wealthier individuals, they were arriving early, they were eating, and they were drinking in abundance. And others would show up later, and there was nothing really left for them, right? I don't know if you can imagine this in our context, right? Imagine if we here at Renaissance, we had like regular members meetings, and we had them at James and Abby's house. And so some of the the members of the church, they arrived early to help set up for the day. During the the day, they would come and help set up. Um, Everyone else, maybe the other members would be at work. Um, and so the rest of the members, they would come after work and they would plan to, to eat a meal together and to fellowship and remember the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, right? All that sounds great. Um, now, imagine you arrive, you're one of the other members, you arrive at like 6.30 p.m., you're, you're there, you're punctual, you're on time, um, you're hungry and you're tired because you've just come off of work, and what you're really looking forward to is gathering together and remembering that sacrifice of Jesus. What happens when you arrive, though, you walk in, uh, all the food is gone, and everyone around you apparently is drunk, right? James has a lampshade over his head. Um, Dylan is lying on the couch with like the seven-layer bean dip in his lap. And Francois is teaching our children how to use a flamethrower, you know? That last one may not be too far from the truth. Um, what, would, what would happen, though? You'd walk in and you'd be like, what is going on here? Right? Like, this isn't the Lord's Supper. This is an abomination. Right? People are going hungry and others are openly getting drunk. Right? But that's what we see is going on here. The, the church is serving its own interests, not looking after the needs of the body. They're ignoring the people of the church in order to serve themselves. And so there are divisions between those who have in abundance and those who are in need. 
And ironically, these people are calling this the Lord's Supper. Right? Why is that ironic? It's because, like we mentioned, what is the Lord's Supper? What is it supposed to be? We gather and we partake in the Lord's Supper as followers of Christ who remember what he has done for us. That Jesus died on the cross for us. He died on the cross for our sins. His body was broken. His blood was spilled on our behalf. And he took the penalty of our sins. Being completely sinless, Jesus bore the weight of our sin. And we take the Lord's Supper as a reminder of his selflessness, that he gave himself for us. And so what Paul says here, he says, whatever you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. Right? This isn't a reminder of Christ's selflessness for others. It is a blatant disregard for the needs of the church where the wealthy are overindulging and the poor go hungry. So because Jesus gave himself for us, as followers of Christ, we give ourselves for one another. The vision maligns the church because the church is to give itself for one another. And, and as we look at, at unity within the church, I want us to see that this is so much bigger than who we say we follow or even getting drunk, really. Unity affects every area of our lives, right? In fact, if we look at 1 Corinthians as a whole, um, what we see is this language of unity spread throughout the entire book, right? So I'm going to give you a, a few examples from some other chapters. This isn't going to be on the screen, but for the time being, you can just listen. So this is regarding sexuality. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says this. He says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. For, but, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. This is regarding food offered to idols. In 1 Corinthians 8, he says, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. He says, For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ through whom all things and through whom we exist. Regarding the Lord's Supper, again in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, because, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we, are, for we all partake in the one bread. And then regarding spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul, he goes on to list all of these spiritual gifts. And he then says, he says, all these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. You see a pattern here. So, as a church, unity is vital because the gospel impacts all areas of our lives, and that's what we're united around. Right? The gospel impacts our relationships. It impacts how we do life together. And we see that it is vital to your identity of the church because division maligns the character of the church. 
And we also see that it is vital to your identity as an image bearer of God. And here um, is where we see our next point. Next point, division maligns the character of God. If we look back at, at chapter 1 to his conversation about the I follow Paul or I follow Apollos, um, he writes this in response to the Corinthians division. In verse 12 he says, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. And this is what I want us to pay attention to. This is what he says. He says, Is Christ divided? Right? Is, is Christ divided? It's obviously a rhetorical question, right? No, of course he is not. Division is not in the character of God. God, by his very nature, is united. And what we see that this is perfectly displayed within the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh, if you're not familiar with Christianity, here's what I mean. So, uh, as Christians, we believe in a triune God which means that we believe in one God and it exists in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Three persons are one God. Sounds confusing, I know, um, but that's, that's what we believe. Um, these, these persons, they are co-eternal. They are equal in all their qualities. None of them is greater than the other. And we see this particularly played out in the life of Jesus. We see this throughout all of Scripture, but we're going to focus on how it plays out in the life of Jesus. So Jesus, the Son, he did everything on earth according to God, the Father's will, by the power of God, the Spirit. He was completely obedient to the Father in everything that he did, and we see this in every aspect of life, even selflessly dying on a cross. Right? So before Jesus died on the cross, he was praying in the garden. He was praying to God the Father. And this is what he says. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Right? He did everything according to the Father's will by the power of the Spirit. And so we see the perfect unity within the very nature of God. And so as Christians... Disunity is a failure to be like God. Division maligns the character of God because Christ is united in the Trinity. And we become like Christ by uniting with him and his bride, the church. Um, how does this play out practically? You may be asking, some of you might be wondering, does this mean that I need to agree with absolutely everything that the church says? Um, that's not exactly the, the point here. However, um, I want to, to read you a little bit what we believe about unity within the church. So I'm going to read something from our, our statement of faith. This is uh, taken directly from our statement of faith, which is on our website. Um, and if you want to see the whole document, you can find so on online. Um, but we're going to take a look at uh, just a couple of the first points. So here is some of what we see in Scripture and what we at Renaissance believe. So, uh, Renaissance Church Statement of Faith, the first thing we see, in essential beliefs, we have unity. Um, there, there's a, a verse underneath it from Ephesians 4, and it says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, 
one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So uh, on essential beliefs, we are united. That means that there are certain issues here that we hold closed-handed. In other words, we're not really debating these things. These are a part of what it means to be a Christian. Um, so things like the virgin birth, the literal resurrection of Jesus, his death on the cross, the forgiveness of sins by grace through faith. These are some issues that are essential to being a Christian. Essentially, the, the main thing that brings us together is Jesus. Right? If you are, are a Christian here today, then we are united around the fact that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And God raised him from the dead and is empowering us to live more like Jesus by his spirit as we repent from our sin and continue to put our faith in him. If you don't know, this is what is called the gospel. It simply means good news. Um, and if you're not a Christian, then I would urge you to consider this message. You don't have to, to fix yourself up before you come to God, but God has done enough on your behalf to pay the debt for your sins. And if you will put your faith in Jesus, then God is faithful to forgive you and he will give you his spirit to make you more and more into the image of God that you were created to be. That's what unites us all here today, is that we are sinners in need of God's grace. If nothing else, that is, that is what unites us. And so, uh, in essential beliefs, we have unity. Next, uh, what we see is in non-essential beliefs, we have freedom. So there's a, a verse, or a few verses here from Romans 14. It says this, it says, Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So then each of us will give an account of him, himself to God. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves. On the other hand here, what we see is that there are some issues that are not essential for you to be a Christian. And what we say is have freedom. Right, so we don't prescribe uh, that you adhere to a particular view of the end times. Um, we're not going to tell you that you need to have a particular view on how old the earth is. Um, and we're not going to tell you which translation of the Bible to read, although it's obviously the ESV. It's not. Um, there are, are many issues that are not essential to, to being a Christian. And on those issues, we have freedom. But with that freedom comes the responsibility that we do not divide the church over these issues. So we see in essential beliefs we have unity, in non-essential beliefs we have freedom, and then finally we see in all our beliefs we show love. And there's a verse here from John 13, 34 to 35. It says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. A church that is united, it loves one another despite their beliefs. It shows one another the self-sacrificial love that Christ has for the church. It gives itself for one another as Christ gave himself for you. And so in everything, by God's Spirit, we show one another love. 
That is how we become united as a church. And again, this cannot happen by being merely human, but it happens by the strength of the Spirit of God. We're going to wrap up here in, in, in just a minute. As we do, I, I want to ask us a little bit of a challenging question today. Um, something that I want us to, to think about um, and it, it regards being divided or united. And the question that I want to ask us is, um, why am I here? Right? That's, that's a question I'm not just asking to you, I'm asking to myself as well. That might feel like a bit of a direct question, right? But it is something that I want us to wrestle with. Why am I here, right? Am I here for a specific pastor? Am I here because I like the music? Am I here because there are a bunch of people here my age? Right? Or am I here to love the church like Jesus did? Am I here because maybe the only thing that I have in common with these people is that we admit that we're sinners who need God's grace. But I want to be united with them anyways. And so if you have found yourself here for the wrong motives. And right now, I would just encourage you to take some time and, and confess your motives to God. And, and I would just ask, I would ask him to, to change your heart to love the church as Jesus does. Like Jesus has given himself for the church and, and we need to be united as, as he is. And he's given us so much grace. And so, None, of, none of, of, of that, none of the, the division, it, leads to, it, it only leads to division in the church. It leads to self-centeredness um, and, and, and division. And, and so what we see, though, is that God is, is faithful to forgive. And so wherever you're at, um, I'll just take a moment just to, to pray by yourself um, and just reflect on that question. What is, what is the reason that I'm here. We'll, we'll take a minute and we'll close in prayer.